I was sitting in the theater. I thought, like, what the fuck am I watching this? This is so cool. But like, how is this James Bond? Welcome to the Crooked Table podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yannis Jr., Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics alike to talk about a movie of their choice, either something that they grew up with or something that they have a personal connection to. So in this episode, I'm pleased to welcome back to the show, Adam Barnard. How's it it going? Good to have you back. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to uh, talk about Bond this time. I feel like I'm always picking action movies, but I guess that's just, that's, that's my niche. From 2012, too, I think. Wasn't Looper also oh the 2012 movie? Oh, my God, movie? you're right. Was that? <laughs> yeah. And the other, the, like, the third one, or the other pick, thing I was going to pick besides Skyfall was Safety Not Guaranteed, which is also t- uh, 2012. So I, I don't know. I think I was like, okay, was it like 16 or 17? That year, I also went to the USC film school program that summer between like junior and senior years. So I was like, that was like such a memorable and seminal year in my life. And it also happened to have just a ton of good movies like Argo came out in 2012 as well. That's one of my favorites, probably something I would also choose to discuss with you if given the opportunity. So like, I I don't know, I, I guess it's kind of like a personal year for me in terms of movies. Yeah, I was about to ask, is there something about 2012 that really spoke to you? So for people that haven't listened to our Looper episode, they should definitely go and do that, obviously. Tell people a little bit about uh, who you are and what you do. Yeah, so uh, in terms of entertainment stuff, you've I do two things that are of note. One, I run a channel called Screen Fever with my writing partner, Jackson Smith, who I went to college with. Also my roommate as of like a month ago. So that's fun. Um, and and that's YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, at Real Screen Fever. Um, we've actually posted our short films on that channel, the stuff that Jackson and I have made because we went to film school and we've produced a lot of narrative content as well as uh, critique content like like podcasts or video essays. So that's kind of like a, a creative outlet for us, not just a criticism outlet, not just like a production outlet it's kind of just blending all our passions and so we're, we're trying to figure out how to evolve that but i've also had you on that channel a couple times if you want to hear rob discuss like a Ke- kevin smith or uh um what else what uh you did the american graffiti yeah review yeah we need to that do was, more of those more of the uh, the older film like the classic film reviews i forgot what, what retro reviews yeah we need to do more yeah you guys oh, need to get retro more reviews yeah yeah we only have one up there but i was actually thinking of doing like moonraker i think jackson are going to do moonraker which is i'm go. going through a bond phase right now i guess i've started rewatching all of them in anticipation for the bond movie next year because you know there's a lot i want to get an early start um so I, that's just like where my head is at and just life has been stressful lately and bond is such you know beautiful swashbuckling escapist entertainment that i've kind of just like uh, you know I've, I've gone through marvel and star wars and so many phases with franchises but this is something that has a storied you know 50 year history and something you can really watch evolve as a creative entity and so whether it's the sean connery era or whether it's Daniel Craig's era wrapping up. I'm always interested in what the franchise has done. And I think that's part of the reason I really, you know, settled on picking a Bond movie for this discussion because uh, there's just so much culture and history around the franchise. It's really rich for great discussion. That's a good preamble, actually, to uh, to talking about Skyfall itself. What is your kind of your your history with the Bond franchise? Do you have any any favorites? And I guess you already touched touched on why it, why it speaks to you, why you, why you keep going back to revisit it. But when did you first discover Bond, and what, at what stage? And and uh, you know what? How does how has that been formative in your cinematic education? I guess. 
Right, right. I mean, unlike a lot of other movies or franchises from my childhood, I don't explicitly remember how I was introduced to, uh, to James Bond. I think that like I, my dad would record the TV edits um, for me because in a bit of a conservative household. So he grew up with Bond. Uh, he's, he's on the older side. He's in his 60s now. So he was like a teenager when all the cool Sean Connery movies were coming out. And so I think he had a fond history of that and wanted to share it with me as much as he could at a young age, you know, without getting, you know, getting into the too risque material. Um, so I think I saw some of the Sean Connery or Roger Moore movies when I was really young. Um, but I was still actually pretty young when Casino Royale came out. I mean, I was, oh, it was 2006. I was like 12, 11 or 12 or 13, 11, 12, 13, somewhere around yeah, getting to the age where I forget my age. So that's fun. Um, but, but, you know, I was still in a preteen, prepubescent phase when I just, when, uh, Casino Royale came out and revolutionized the James Bond franchise. So in a way I like the Daniel Craig era was more seminal than like the Sean Connery movies. Um, but, but as I've grown older, I've also been able to go back and see the value in the older movies. Cause you know, when you're young, it's like, but casino Royale, it's so much better action and explosions and fights. And like, but when you're older, you also appreciate the kind of, uh, more mellow retro, uh, suave vibe that, that the older movies had. So I'm just, I just appreciate the franchise as a whole. Um, maybe I'll have to come on and discuss an old Bond movie with you sometime. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's funny because you were the exact same age that I was when GoldenEye came out. Because that's, really? that's, that's the version of Bond that I guess I sort of grew up with. Uh, it, it feels like every generation has their has their Bond. Um, so, yeah, so that's, that's – yeah. So have you um, – have you gone back and have you seen all of them up to this point? Because to be honest, I've seen all the Craigs, most of the Brosnans, and then like sporadic ones from before that. Uh, have you really gone back and, and delved into the Bond library? I mean, we're talking about the 23rd in the proper franchise in this episode. So right. there's quite a few. Wow. Yeah. I um, That's a really good question. I think I started rewatching the Daniel Craig ones um, after – they hired Kerry Fukunaga to do Bond 25. I was really, really intrigued with where the franchise was going because I thought it was a crazy choice. It's a ton of drama about producing the new Bond movie. Uh, it's been a very rocky road to production. And, you know, I like to get into all that how it's made stuff with the movie industry. So, like, believe it or not, the kind of rocky road to production piqued my interest in the franchise. Like, you know, what is this franchise trying to accomplish? And what has the Craig era done? And then after I rewatched all the Daniel Craig movies, I'm like, I really need to go back and rewatch every movie just to say I've done it, but also to like see the ones I haven't and really fully be able to understand quintessentially uh, what Bond is, at least from the movies. I mean, I, I need to read the books too, but I'm going to start with the movies because there's plenty to do there already. Um, and, and so I, I guess I'm like six or seven movies into the Connery era. I, I oh man, what was the one I, it wasn't Thunderball. I've completely forgotten the name of the last one. Uh, you only lived twice. I think it was you only died. No. Yeah. You only lived twice. I think it was that the last right. one I watched. Uh, it's so funny to see all the, like the sexist and racist outdated oh, humor God, yeah. and not, maybe not funny, but it's just like, you're just like, wow, I can't believe <laughs> they did that. Um, but if you're able to kind of overlook or forgive or cringe through those moments, like there's actually some 
really great storytelling and, and, and character stuff that's just so much fun and it's timeless because I'm still enjoying it, you know, five decades later. Yeah, talk about talk about an opportunity to do like a a cultural analysis of one property over the decades. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> short of like a uh, short of a mythical character, like King Arthur or Robin Hood or something like that. Like I, this, this character has literally been around for, what is it? 57 years now since, uh, since in on film, uh, I mean, Dr. No was 62. Yeah. 1962. I think. Yeah. 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 So wow. to go back and, and kind of chart that character's evolution, that that's, yeah, that would be that would be a, a great experience. Like, I would love to do that too. I tried at one point. I think I don't know if it was when this film came out. It might have been because this came out. Skyfall came out on the fiftieth anniversary of uh, of the franchise, the film franchise starting out. So that might have been when I went back and tried to watch some of the other ones, and then I like lost track because there's just so many. Which is why I've seen yeah. Doctor No from Russia with Love and still not uh, Goldfinger, which I know is considered like the one of the best ones. Yeah. Oh, that's see, because I've actually haven't been enjoying all the old. But I've enjoyed the ones I've enjoyed. I've really enjoyed, but they're also like some real duds. Like I finished the movie and I'm like, even the redeeming factors weren't enough for me to give a thumbs up as a whole. But like the ones I do enjoy, I really enjoy like, like a Goldfinger or Thunderball. I mean, they're just so, so good. And it's like something like I could watch again the next week if I had to. Um, so there's kind of a polarity with the franchise, even with the Craig era, there's a polarity. I mean, Casino Royale and Skyfall are two of my absolute favorite Bond movies ever. And just some of my favorite action adventure leading man movies. And then Spectre and Quantum of Solace are some of my, my least favorite Bond <laughs> movies and just extremely frustrating to watch. So it's, it's, it's the franchise is also kind of, I feel like it's known for its hit and miss. Um, and so it's kind of like, you feel like you're playing Russian roulette every time you walk into a theater for a new Bond. You're like, how's this going to turn out? Right. Well, no, and that's, I'm glad you mentioned that. Cause I was going to ask like where you stand on the Craig films itself. It does seem like we're alternating great film, uh, kind of a slog and uh and yeah. so if that's the case then 25 should be uh hopefully a satisfying end to craig's run who's who obviously has been historically like just has a historic like distaste for the character like i don't know if that's ne- negotiating really tactics would you, you mean like craig, like, craig has said like oh his attitude wanna, yeah yeah, I don't know if that's like how much of that is him just because it's an arduous like they're they're really hard to make or or if it's just some kind of maybe it's a little bit of a negotiating tack like oh, I don't know if I want to come back and they're like we'll give you more money it's like okay you you talk yeah. me into it it might be a little bit of both um, but no I, I mean I, can, I think. It's possible, but he also like he does the character so well. Yeah. I don't feel like he's sleepwalking. I mean, maybe Inspector he was put in a little bit of a subpar performance, but as a whole, like he is almost solely responsible for the reinvigoration of Bond due to his performance and his ethos. And he has he actually has quite a bit of creative say in the Bond movies now. So yeah, again, love hate relationship, hit or miss. That's kind of like the polarity of James Bond. Yeah, and it's funny that Spectre also was directed by Sam Mendes. So I guess this is kind of a, uh, you know, I think I think it kind of proves the rule that maybe they should keep it with kind of the Mission Impossible approach where every film a different director because it seems like Mendes yeah. maybe lost interest or got, I don't know. I don't know exactly what went I, wrong yeah, there. It's Spectre's. kind of a different conversation. But in, I don't know how you botch Christoph Waltz as, as spoilers, I guess, Blofeld, yeah. <laughs> which they did the whole... Uh, mystery box thing like uh star trek into darkness and things like that denying that he was blowfeld the whole time so now we're talking about the sequel to the film we're supposed to be talking about but it's it, yeah right. i think specter in a lot of ways is 
is an equally interesting conversation because it should have that should have been like the crowning achievement after Skyfall hit a billion and it's you know the highest grossing in the franchise and all that and instead did like set up for the perfect shot and then like airballed it completely um yeah not not at the box on paper i mean the core idea the core idea of specter again jumping ahead the core idea of specter wasn't the worst thing in the world it was actually could have been cool but like one critic i listened to movie bob pointed out like in the past three movies they did none of the groundwork that something like the mcu would do to pull off such a big reveal or culmination so it's like it almost feels like an afterthought that oh by the way it's always been me and i'm the author of your pain like without you know without understanding that bond was working his way up to to catch the big fish like for example in casino royale i remember this moment uh when when the mi6 first discovers le chiffre who's playing who's played by mods mickelson who's like this uh is terrorist very very financially rich guy behind the curtain I'm, I'm sorry i'm blanking on exactly how he factored in his character but but um the idea was that m said how how could he be so rich and powerful and we didn't know he exists? Like it was the part of the theme of this movie was like, how could he have been a sight unseen for so long? But he was just the lowest in the chain of four different villains up to Blofeld. Like you can't say, oh, you know, how could we possibly have never discovered the underling and then work your way up to someone who's literally puppeteering the global economy and, and, you know, the Illuminati in the truest sense of the word. And, and, you know, how are you surprised by that? How is it such a big intelligence failure? None of that was really planted. So it, it almost feels like diabolically childish to put some, throw something like that. And that's part of the reason why I think it did land, but also it was poorly executed. Just even the script itself was poorly paced and poorly executed. So it was, I I think it would be actually something that would would be interesting to break down at length for a full discussion because like all due respect to the people involved who are immensely talented, it was a really, really, really poor outcome for that amount of money and that about a creativity in a movie. Yeah. 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 I remember being really hyped for that after Skyfall. And it's weird because Casino Royale uh, reinvigorated the character in such a huge way, and then Quantum of Solace was picks up literally from like a few minutes later after Casino Royale. So those two are obvious companion pieces, but then Skyfall feels almost kind of disconnected from those other two, and then Spectre, yeah. the sequel to Skyfall, kind of uh, tries to loop all of them back together. Obviously, has a lot of in common with Skyfall itself because it's the same director and all that, but but then. Um, you know, picks up the plot threads from Quantum of Solace and Casino Royale more so in a way. Uh, so I think part of that's probably part of the reason maybe that Skyfall, it, it's it's weird because this Craig era feels like it's constantly at odds, at odds with itself about wanting to do uh, episodic adventures, standalones, and wanting to be <laughs> serialized storytelling. And so the first two are more serialized and then Skyfall feels like it's connected to those, but also almost kind of a the dark knight returns in a way for bond where she's like oh we've both been at this a while and things like that now we're getting yeah. this is still big picture stuff then we'll get into the actual movie and then specter is is then trying to like back to serialize so i think that's like it's i think maybe that's part of the other part of the thing with specter is that they they've been flip-flopping us back and forth like the first two sure were, were uh you know a two-part story in a way and then skyfall started something new and then specter just reverted back so it's it's weird it's well, skyfall it's why I'm so interested yeah, to see what happens next. 
from them. I agree because Skyfall is almost like a sidestep, but not in a bad way at all. A very needed Scott uh, sidestep because I feel like after Quantum of Solace, they're like. If we do another bad movie, we're screwed. Like we can't, you know, it's like if we if we try to go down this route and it's still not landing or not interesting, if you're trying to make a third part of a trilogy, you know, this maybe we need to pass it off to someone like Sam Mendes. It was a very unexpected choice at the time. Um and and it kind of it was almost like a soft reboot of the Craig era. Right. Um, which which worked very well. Uh, I mean, just getting into that, I think the story of how this movie came to be is interesting because it got delayed because of MGM's bankruptcy in 2009, 2010. I mean, usually I think they were trying to schedule Bond movies like two, maybe three years apart. This ended up being four years apart from from Quantum of Solace, and that was largely due to the studio being underwater. And in that time, you know, they were looking for a director, and I was reading here on Wikipedia that, like, uh, Craig had worked with Mendes before, I think on Road to Perdition, which is, like, early, oh, yeah, mid-2000s. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and he approached Mendes, who was directing a play, and said, would you like to do the next Bond movie? And, and Sam Mendes was like, with, you know, he kind of had a more conventional view of Bond. He's like, I don't think that interests me. But what happens was they gave him more autonomy over the story and the characters and if you look at Mendy's body of work he's an amazing character storyteller and I mean he's such a crazy choice for this because he doesn't have an ac- any action on his resume you know it's all character drama uh, you know very conventional very classical character dra- uh, drama so it's it's a strange pairing but he was able to pull off the visual uh, what's the word visual ambition of the movie of Skyfall while not losing track of the characters and what he does instead of trying to just synthetically develop these characters and make them so complex, he focuses uh, on very, very simple character interactions, but that go a long way. You know, it's like everyone has their arc. It doesn't have to be complicated, but everyone has a personality. It's like women aren't just objects. They're more like characters in this. Uh, You see what I'm saying? And so like, like the story with M and bond and them both struggling to find their place in the intelligence community. It's very simple. It's not super nuanced drama, but it's so well paced and so well executed that you can't help, you know, feeling the love for the storytelling and, and, and being absorbed into the narrative. Yeah, no, no, that makes perfect sense. I think, um, before we really get, get any, any deeper into Skyfall, we should just listen sure. to a little bit of the, the trailer for Skyfall, uh, right now. What do you say about a man like that? Three months ago, you lost the drive containing the identity of every agent embedded in terrorist organizations across the globe. 007 reporting for duty. Where the hell have you been? Enjoying death. I only have one question. Why not stay dead? There's no shame in saying you've lost a step. Targeting her. They wanted her to see it. Welcome to the new MI6. I'm your quartermaster. You must be joking. Also PPKS 9mm short. It's been coded to your palm print, so only you can fire it. Less of a random killing machine, more of a personal statement. Q. 007. I want to meet your employer. How much do you know about fear? All there is. Well, not like this. Not like him. Just look at you. Chasing spies. England. Am I six? She sent you after me, knowing you're not ready, knowing you would likely die. 
Mommy was very bad. The two survivors, this is what she made us. Everybody needs a hobby. So what's yours? Resurrection. That was a little bit of the trailer for Skyfall, directed by Sam Mendes from 2012. So one thing that you that you mentioned a few minutes ago is that you, you said you kind of referenced this as the third part in a trilogy. So that was one of the key questions that I wanted to get at. Do, do you feel like this film, Mendes, maybe part of his pitch was this being the the end of a three-part story that essentially ends with classic Bond? Because we get Money Penny, we get Q, we get the Aston right. Martin, we get um, uh, we get what was the other thing I wanted to say? <laughs> oh man, I had another. What are thought. The, the PPK or the radio transmitter? The little. Yeah, I, I mean, know. we go. We it circles back around to a, a male M, which which is how the film, the franchise started. Like a lot of that, it, it feels like all yeah. of it kind of leads back into like almost if you wanted to view these three movies as a prequel trilogy to like Doctor No or whatever, you almost could do that. Do you think that was part of the part of his pitch? Right. I might have misspoke earlier um, or, or was not clear about my point or just talked too fast, which is a common <laughs> common problem of mine. I, I would say like I thought this third movie could have gone more in the direction of trying to tie up the trilogy and instead was like a, was was trying to do something else. I mean, to your point, it probably could be viewed as the third movie in a trilogy, but like usually the second between the second and third movie, you're planting a final conflict. You know, the end of a second movie in a trilogy is setting up the act three of a trilogy. And instead quantum of solace kind of sputters out with a half satisfying ending, fulfilling bonds, revenge quest. And then Skyfall just jumps to a totally different conflict, totally different themes, totally different issue. It's not as much about Vesper anymore or about uh, um, the Solace or whatever the uh, enemy agency was. And uh, that's – I don't know whether that decision was good or not, but like I know that this individual movie – apart from what came before or after it works very, very well. And I mean, the end is like, I just walk out with a shit eating grin, almost like I do at the end of the force awakens where it's like, Oh my God, I cannot wait for what's going to come next because the last few minutes of of the movie really set up that kind of just like classy swashbuckling vibe that has been lacking in the Daniel Craig era, which is fine, but it almost is like Daniel Craig's, starting to follow more closely in the predecessor's footsteps instead of being more like a Jason Bourne type figure like he was in Casino Royale. I also feel like with the way this ends with everybody sort of like the classic Bond characters all in place with him, you know, M asks him, are you ready to get back to work? He's like, with pleasure. It almost feels like the closing of like his self-doubt, his issues with Vesper, with M, like all his all his like baggage, literally his family home burns to the ground, exp- actually burns to the ground and explodes actually in this film. So it feels like that has been left behind, which, which is why when the Spectre like reopens it again, it's like, Oh, remember quantum? <laughs> it feels yeah. like, and this is the issue I have with dark, dark Phoenix, which just came out as of this recording uh, and it's right. failing miserably. Um, that it feels sort of like the fourth part of a, th- of a three part story. It's like you, you ended that story and now you're like, wait, 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 there's more. Um, and I, and I think that that, that might also be some of the, you know, expectation setting that went into Spectre was, okay, now, now we're going to see Daniel Craig's version, not as, not as so much of the tortured bond, but more of the, like more, more of the, the classic, uh, bond image, you know what I mean? And, and that, that we built up to that at the same time, it's like, 
as soon as he meets Leah Sidhu's character, she's like, don't you get tired of all the running? Basically, don't you just want to retire, daddy? Like, that's basically the vibe I get. I'm like, oh, <laughs> my God. Because it's like, again, like, Skyfall was setting up, I feel like, at least a couple standalone adventures or something that was going to be more old school. And then, you know, Bond, like you said, Bond spends Skyfall getting over his age or irrelevancy only to immediately question again the next morning while chasing down this this impossibly well-connected big bad from his past. Um, (laughs) I told Jackson, my my roommate, my screen fever partner, that, like, I I was so excited – um, um, at the end of Skyfall and then Spectre happened. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's all I can say. And Spectre happened. Like there's no, it, it just, everything about Spectre feels like it contradicts Skyfall, which is weird because you would think switching, you know, you would think keeping the same director for those two movies would ensure a degree of consistency. Yet I feel like anywhere, but the way they went would have been better. I feel like if someone else came in, they would have built up a better sequel to Skyfall specifically than Sam Mendes could have. Um, so that was just, it was confusing. I feel very confused about the experience still. It's almost like it would be easy to imagine this and acting as more of the final part of a trilogy had Silva been revealed to maybe be behind quantum or something and then kind of tie it back exactly. around and have have at least this this be a three-part story bond has moved on from a certain point and then oh blofeld what what's happening and how specter start a new a new you know ongoing mini arc or, or whatever and have that be the case that's a great idea it's yeah um, because it would have pr- provided finale for the character if he really felt like he exactly. got revenge or justice for vesper and everything that's happened in the past two movies you could the end i mean the end landed great he'd hear where it's like, you know, I look forward to our time together, Miss Money Penny. that kind of like, he's like happy to show up to work, which he's been so brooding throughout the, his tenure so far that it's a, a welcome change. Um, but yeah, then again, it's like, Oh wait, where it's a quadrilly. Qu- how do you say trilogy with four? Yeah. Qu- quadrilogy. And thanks to the alien. Quadrilogy. Franchise. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's almost, I, like, I wonder if they brought Mendy's in and they're like, here, you know, quantum of solace was a mess. Do, it, do whatever you want with Skyfall, go for it. And then after Skyfall, they were like, great, Skyfall's a huge hit. Awesome. Now, this is what we want you to do for the next one. And he's like, <laughs> yeah. I guess this isn't what I signed. Like, it feels to me a little bit, it reminds me of um, Sam Raimi, how he did the first two Spider-Mans, and they were all great. And then the third one, then Avi Arad and, and uh, yeah. you know, the, the producers were all like, okay, that you, Sandman, that's fine, cool. But also, make sure you put Venom in there because he's he's a huge right. deal, and we all know how that went. And it sounds like they're trying to do that again with the and the current Spider-Man franchise. So, uh, yeah. studios just keep not learning their lessons. So, do you think that maybe that was part of it, kind of the producers' interference and in trying to force Blofeld in there, and I guess reverse engineer a a, a cinematic Bond cinematic universe yeah. with all the films? The leaked emails from the Sony hack shed some light on the situation. I think they were scrambling with different versions of the story and couldn't pick what they wanted until the last minute. And I think they changed the script very, very close to production. I think the script was also rushed either way. The shoot was extremely expensive. Like it was $300 million or something. It's one of the most expensive movies ever made. I don't know where that money went, but it, because Skyfall looks like the more ambitious, more expensive movie, but it did. Um, and, and so that's, you know, I think filmmaking is a, is a very complicated art. Like anytime a movie, comes out that people don't like there's an inclination to say yeah i guess they didn't try it's like no no. if you finished a movie you had to try hard like if there's a complete film that you 
shot all of it and edited all of it, that's already an accomplishment just getting to the finish line. Oh, yeah. And sometimes, sometimes it just does not come together. And oftentimes with Bond, they shoot, they, they shoot very close to the release date. Like they'll shoot like the spring of the year it's coming out in the fall. I don't know why. I, and so it's like, there's not much time for reshoots or whatever else. And when, you know, when October, November comes around, you turn in the final copy of the movie and that's that. And sometimes even the best people will screw up. And, and so that's, that's pretty, I mean, that's kind of my theory on it. Um, I, I think it was well-intentioned. I still think actually Sam, Sam Mendes had a lot of control on Spectre. Like I, I do think the film is, uh, showcase it's like an auteur but an auteur failing it's not like his auteurship was compromised right it's just like his auteurship had a stroke i mean so it's terrible for me to say but that's really what it felt like <laughs> something went terribly anyway right. sorry we should get back to skyfall <laughs> terrible i'm not trying to defame uh specter sam mendes i mean sam mendes i think is one of the best directors out there i mean he's done American Beauty, which is one of my favorite movies he's yeah. you know road to perdition away i think he did away we go um, what's the other one with Leo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet? Revolutionary. Um, Revolutionary. Yeah. 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 He did that one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was him. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's just incredible. Incredible. He's directed some highly acclaimed plays. I, I mean, he's, he's amazing and it hurts. It actually like as a fan, it hurts to see something fail like this. Um, wait, wait, with specter, but the success of skyfall remains untouched. I mean, I think that's one of the best movies uh, I've seen so far with bond. Yeah, I think that that I agree with that. And I think part of why this story is so interesting is one, well, they they reintroduced Bond with Casino Royale, with Martin Campbell coming back from Goldeneye to do that. And cast Daniel Craig, who has this like, you know, much kind of darker energy than the other Bond. So they, they basically reinvented the character for the age of Bourne and the age of the, the Nolan Batman franchise. There's a lot in this film specifically that feels kind of influenced by the Dark Knight, uh, just like Certainly. like especially with Silva and his plans, and we'll get into all that shortly. I'm I'm sure, <laughs> um, but but this movie takes that that like brooding Bond, and uh, I guess it feels like there's a huge gap of time between Quantum of Solace and this in a way because all of a sudden like he was this like young agent coming up getting double O status in the opening credits of Casino Royale here. They're like, Oh, we've been in this too long. So he's like almost, he's on the verge of retiring and almost doesn't come back to MI6. So he's still got that, that grittiness, which I know is now like a cliche term, but he's, he also more vulnerable physically and everything in this film, which I think is, is, uh, is a, a, a neat little bit of stake setting up front where before he even goes on the mission with Silva, she lies about his test results. He's like physically, you know, not able to to go back into active status. He's like got all these substance yeah. abuse issues and things like that. So it's like it, it deftly in one fell swoop in the first act takes him from being this unstoppable super spy to having him almost dead and basically like literally the most vulnerable that we've ever seen James Bond up to this point. Yeah, I mean, we basically see him dead floating down the right. river within the first 15 minutes. Um, and, and so that's uh, – <laughs> it's that part still trips me out. I think it's I think it's brilliant in some ways, but it was such a shock to watch at first. Because um, then you think – I mean, usually after 
the cold open or whatever the first you know 10 or 15 minutes of a bond usually is there's some kind of success or or proficiency that we see bond display which leads us into the main story now like you said it's it's basically it's not even like sean bean dying it's one step above that it's it's james bond dying um and, and i think it, it it's something that's gained through rewatches, but you see in the few scenes that Bond is kind of in retirement in some exotic setting. Like once you really think about what he's been through and what the movies have laid, you start to sympathize with where he's at, where it's like on one hand, it's like, what is my purpose? Who am I? You know, I'm in my forties and I'm now basically in exile, probably with a lot of resources, but an exile nonetheless. Um, but then like, like I, I don't, you know, intelligence and and espionage is what i am without that like i'm purposeless and there's kind of like a desire to go back to it but also a kind of cynical wisdom that's like no your time has expired so that's why when he sees uh diving into the plot a little bit he sees an attack on mi6 uh where silva blows up you know triggers a gas leak and blows up a floor of the building He's he, you know, to quote the script, he said, we're under attack and he knows that he has to come back. And it's kind of like a very classical call to action. But you already know, again, simple but effective character work. You already know that, like, he's very unsure of himself and he's not up to par. He's not the kind of like flawless, infallible James Bond that we're often used to. Um, and, and that's just it's more intriguing. And there's a rich drama that comes with that. I also think, too, that part of what maybe carried this film to the box office heights that it did, especially after Quantum of Solace, I feel like Quantum of Solace really was writing the coattails of Casino Royale, but this was sure. the Bond franchise, basically the meta-narrative of the Bond franchise justifying why it exists in an age with the Bourne movies and Mission Impossible movies and all these superhero movies. Like, well, why do we need James Bond? This is basically, you can read that into all the scenes and the hearing where M is def- uh, defending MI6. So the the film franchise in this film is is rationalizing why this film franchise still has a place in the world of cinema 50 years on and i think that it's trying to to reaffirm its niche in the same way that that bond is uh in the same way that bond is trying to do so that's actually an interesting theory i wouldn't have thought of that myself <laughs> yeah because it's good so much of it is old-fashioned techniques versus tech and the fact that the villain is a cyber terrorist, the fact that um, right. uh, Money Penny and oh, I think it might be, uh, I think it's Garrett, Mal- Gareth Mallory. Or yeah, Mallory. Yeah, yeah. They both Ray, say Ray old, old ways are sometimes the best. And there's like that clashing of the old way of doing things, the old you know way of, of espionage, but also spy movies in a way. And in a modern context, it's like, well, where, where do they fit in? And I think that the yeah. fact that Skyfall performs so well is, you know, a resounding answer to that of how you can make Bond still palatable for a modern audience uh, rather than, you know, kind of a, uh, a bit of nostalgia and, and kind of, bring him into where we, where we are currently with franchise filmmaking and everything else going on. Yeah. There's a great scene where Bond's stocking up with Q right before he goes right. to, I think it was Shanghai. Um, and, and so he, he told to meet Q at a museum 
and this young 20 something guy <laughs> approaches him who, you know, bond seems irritated. He's like, I have to meet someone. I'm going to leave. And then he finds out it's Q. He's like, you gotta be joking. He's like, you still have spots. He was says to him. And it's like, um, and, and that was a really funny interplay where, where bond is kind of realizing that things have changed, but also when they're, uh, when he gets his, t- his package, his agent package is literally just the PP Walter PPK with like, th- uh, dermal sensor so only he can fire it and then right. a, a basic you know one button <laughs> radio transmitter and then so so cute my favorite one of my favorite lines in the movie is is uh you know bond says it's not exactly christmas is it and then q says were you expecting a, an exploding pen because we don't really right. go in for that anymore yep. and i yep. was like a, a very 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 meta way of even referencing specifically golden eye because mm-hmm. that exploding pen is very key in golden eye but also to say like come on like we're not going to p- play with gadgets in the same way we're used to anymore. It's kind of like, and to your point, a very clear declaration of where the franchise is going and what this movie is trying to position Bond as becoming in the new era. In a way, I think the radio is kind of emblematic of the whole movie because um, the new tech, the new Q, played by Ben Wishaw, which was, I think, my first exposure Amazing. to him yeah. as an actor because I know this and Cloud Atlas came out the same year. Uh, and he was great in that as well. Now he's, of course, of course, the voice of Paddington. He was in Mary Poppins Returns. Like his career has really blossomed in the last few years, uh, and he he's great in this film as well. The the radio is given to him by Ben Wishaw, and then uh, you know he kind of remarks about it. Then later on, it's ultimately it's the, a radio that really helps him kind of take down uh, take down Silva. The radio comes back in later on and tracks at least helps him ca- capture him. In like the midpoint right. of the movie, where he's like, "Oh, it's called a radio or whatever." Bond, being the the old fashioned spy, kind of literally in the under the in the course of the film, modernizing his tactics, and just as this film kind of re-energizes the franchise, it's like a, there's there's a real like, and that's even from the first yeah. time I watched the film, I really found that meta narrative very like fascinating about the way that a Bond movie is is kind of being so bold as to comment on itself well there's another great moment where uh at the end of the movie where they've basically gone back to james bond's child childhood home to make a, a final stand against silva and they don't have many weapons and king kate who's the ground keepers is you know presenting what few weapons they haven't right. sold to a collector from the stash and, and so he's walking through and then finally he says but sometimes the old way of doing things is best and he takes out uh, a, a giant like uh a combat knife essentially and, and, and plops it down the table. And that's the knife that bond uses to kill Silva in the end. Right. Uh, he doesn't use something complicated. He just throws a knife into his back and that kills him. So it's, yeah, I, you know, I actually didn't put two and two together in that case, but that's another, yet another moment, even in the climax of how you bring the villain down as a knife. And this is this technologically advanced cyber terrorist. So yeah, I think that's Mendy's strength with theme. Again, it's like simple, but poignant, effective, has something to say. Yeah, this film is so thematically rich. I mean, with that, and then we'll get more into the kind of uh, disturbed uh, father or mother-son relationship between M and Silva yeah. and Bond and like the, that connection between the three of them. I also want to make sure that to mention that they almost got Sean Connery for that Albert Finney role. Uh, oh, which, I know. Which would have yeah. been really interesting. I mean, it, and it would have kind of led a little bit of credence to the fact that 
what is that fan theory that James Bond is just a code name that's just passed from person to person? It's like that maybe well, that, that would explain <laughs> why M that would explain yes. why M is, is yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess, but the fact is Bond's parents go by Bond and you see it on their tombstone. Exactly. So it's like, that's kind of, it kind of, it's a great theory. I would love it. I would actually be totally okay with it being true, but, but unfortunately it's kind of, this movie makes it harder to believe that. Yeah, I think so. Judy Dench, would you agree this is probably her, her best performance in the series? I think it's definitely the largest role she's had. I haven't seen, or at least recently seen. I think she was many of, of, of her. Yeah, well, she started in GoldenEye, but she was in. Was she there for all of Brosnan's tenure? Because those movies are very rusty. On yeah, I haven't gotten yeah. there yet. I believe so. I okay. think she was there from GoldenEye all the way through to, to yeah. Skyfall. Uh, because this film, I, I guess, because she knew it was, they knew it was going to be her last one. Essentially, the, she's really as pivotal a figure in this film as bond pretty much like she is the whole film, the whole plot centers on M and, uh, and the, the parallels between the, her, uh, bond and, and Silva. Yeah. I was just almost more of her story than bonds in some way. I mean, even though she has less screen time, um, I guess like in, in intelligence or in espionage, if, how you know if you're there for a long time there's no way you haven't made mortal enemies at least if you've done your job well and it's like i think for people who play the game that long there is a reckoning at some point and of your making whether you whether you did it maliciously or did it out of duty like i mean when m explains why she betrayed silva when he was an mi6 agent it makes sense and and it's it's something that you could even support the decision of as as an audience member but it's you know it, it it's still live by the sword die by the sword and then that's interesting especially because bond's thinking kind of questioning his own place and he sees someone who's literally almost double his age and thinking do i want to turn into that you know do i actually trust him do i want to be as cold and heartless as or you know bond and m have a lot of tension i think he's never quite over the fact that she said take the bloody shot which you know putting his life in the line he says to m you should have trusted me to finish the job um so that's kind of another theme um of, of age and the physical age and morals or morality and identity within the world of espionage, which I'm such a whore for espionage um, stories, like whether it's Homeland or 24 or James Bond or, or, or even like Argo, which is like politically or geopolitically themed dramas and thrillers. I just, I I love that. I think, I think the people who operate in the shadows, you know, that's yet another theme in this movie. They always Mm -hmm. talk about the shadows. They say, does it exist anymore? You know, where do, where do our enemies operate? And to me, it's just, I find it so interesting that people or agencies dedicate their lives to exploring and manipulating the shadows. Like it's kind of like a, it's, it's, it's in the shadows are integrated with our everyday world. There's stuff happening down the street that could inform national security issues or wars or whatever. And we'll never know about it. But these people like CIA or MI6 operate there. It's like the adventure or the knowledge that you have and, and, and what you have to do to gain intelligence or to gain the upper hand, like it's the ultimate sacrifice and it is a, a, a completely whole over what's the word. It's all consuming lifestyle. I think it's, and that's interests me to see what it does to people who operate in that all consuming world. There's a lot in this film about the sense of history and past trauma. I mean, uh, Silva even says, think on your sins repeatedly to, yeah. to, uh, yeah. M throughout and, and, 
yeah, there's a lot of the weight of the responsibility of that. And um, you, the film really positions Bond and Silva as kind of two sides of the same coin, the, 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 last, two, yeah. the last two surviving rats. And I think that's part of what makes a lot of in a lot of cases. And this is probably part of why the film feels so uh, Batman and the Joker or so comic booky to me is that the two, the hero and the villain have basically the same backstory. It's just they made different or Harry and Voldemort. Like, you you know, you can you can trace that throughout any different, uh, you know, story, classic story of good and evil. It's based on the decisions and the choices that they make that that defines who they are and all of that. And M even says in this film that they he comes from the same place as Bond, the shadows, like you were saying. Yeah, my favorite, one of my other favorite beats. Yeah, it's so good. I think that's part of what makes Silva in this film such a, a memorable Bond villain, uh, in it, which is weird in a way because Blofeld is like, is the iconic, like his arch nemesis. And I feel like he, he makes so, like Silva, it makes so much more of an impression than Blofeld because of that, that dichotomy between him and Bond. Yeah, that's so interesting because like, I, I think part of the issue with, just quickly, I'm, I'm going to stay on Skyfall, I promise. But like with Blofeld is that you can't perfectly I, recreate something that was already right. That was already kind of memorable in culture, in the cultural lexicon. And so it's like with Silva, it's like they weren't trying to be Blofeld. There wasn't even a minion to Blofeld. He was just his own character. And yeah, he wasn't positioned to have a recurring arc throughout movies. It was just like, how can we most efficiently develop this character and intertwine them in the lives of our heroes from the, from, you know, Bond or M or other people at MI6. And like, again, that was done so damn well. Um, I, I think, I think the scene where Silva has his introductory monologue, I think it's so memorable when he just comes down from the elevator and there's this long hallway that he has to walk towards one long Bond, lingering you know, shot past all the servers. Yeah. Yeah. And that, in that like warehouse type place. And it's like, it's per- the monologue is so perfectly executed and perfectly timed and perfectly delivered. I mean, just as an act of filmmaking, it's so impressive how he literally finishes his monologue where he takes his last step to be right in front of bond. I mean, the timing and the pacing and the delivery and the blocking, all that is just, but in, in the movie, it doesn't, feel synthesized it just feels like this guy is so diabolically precise that's just his entire persona so it it, it fits the character and, and and then like uh kind of we already touched on it already but the theme about you know last the final two standing what do you do do you turn on each other or do you turn on everyone else um that was it was interesting because they're both protégés of him that's another interesting thing they both have the same teacher the same mentor they're they're kind of looking in a mirror as they fight with each other throughout the story and i actually do think that bond considers the fact that he is wrong he never verbalizes it but i think the acting and direction indicates that silva starts to sway him mm-hmm. uh and i don't that, know where you stand in that. that scene with the where he's telling the story about the rats and everything and that um i mean a bit afterwards when you know bond says well she never lied to me silva says all she does is lie and bond says no oh, she yeah. never lied to me and Silva points out, like, the, you know, you failed all your tests. She right. sent you here unprepared and said you were. You know, she's whatever she has to do, whatever she thinks is best, regardless of whether she has to tell the truth or or act protectively of agents, she's not, you know, she's going to do whatever it takes to get the job done. And that's also, yet again, another theme that comes up whenever M is, is uh, tr- M's nearly forced into retirement in the beginning. She says, I'm not going to leave with dignity. I'm going to leave when the job's done. You know, for her, it's like the highest calling above people's lives or souls is her duty to country and MI6. And, you know, I think Bond starts to ask, 
is this someone who I want to continue to trust and take their authority, you know, take orders from her unapologetically or without question. Uh, again, so much to discuss here. And oftentimes it's, it's communicated very subtly. It's like, as Silva starts to reveal some of M's true nature through stories or through direct examples or, or what he, how he agitates her and bond sees that bond, I think is like constantly evaluating do I really know what's going on in this situation? And am, am I, you know, have I been lied to? So do I, do I need to get out of Dodge? And then in the end, it ends up that sense of duty and country is ultimately kind of M's legacy and unbond where by the end of the film, he's like, I'm ready to go to work with pleasure to, you know, defend, you know, protect my country and all of that. And the, the film, I mean, we mentioned, you know, you mentioned his Silva's entrance, which is an outstanding scene, not only with the long yeah. shot of him coming down the hallway, but then, He's like toying with Bond's mind. He's almost like kind of flirting with him at one point. Uh, and, yeah, and that it's, gives it's insinuated he is. Uh, yeah. Um, he, he's sexually adventurous with guys as yeah. well. There's a lot of it's a lot of innuendos that I, I mean I love that because Bond's been so masculine, but like exactly. heteromasculine. This kind of brings in like Silva even says, you know, he's like feeling Bond up. He's like the training never covered this. He's like there's a first time for everything. <laughs> then Bond just dead eyes him and goes, "What makes you think this is my first time?" Right. And I was just I was just <laughs> so uh, again like something part of the new era seeping into Bond, but I just exactly. I. Just just loved how playful that was with with the characters um i i don't know small detail but it went a long way for me no no i agree you know as you mentioned and that calls to mind the the whole uh the the classic storytelling archetypes the fact that uh obi-wan taught vader and also luke and they are the arch nemesis throughout the course of the you know the original star wars trilogy and the fact that they have the same teacher here so Silva knows what Bond is thinking. He knows he's trying to to remember his training, like he said, and and that he's just like toying with his mind and uh, and uh, trying to see how he he'll, he'll react. Which again remind makes him feel very jokery to me in a way. He's he's he True. relishes in the chaos, which is fun because Javier Bardem, who comes into this film at at the midway point, um, it, it, he it gives him a lot of fun to really have those like serious dramatic moments but also have instances where he really gets to ham it up with the whole you know mommy was very bad and things like that <laughs> yeah. um, and the film presents that character in in such a uh specific careful way where you understand his motivations but you still keep that mystery to him until after he's caught and you know he removes the his his jaw and all of that stuff um where you really get the layers yeah, peeled back crazy. on him and then you realize some of his playfulness is almost like a coping mechanism for his trauma right. you know it's like deep down he's vengeful and 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 deeply wounded and and, and his you know, playfulness or joking. I don't think he's like the Joker, but he does have a a, a kind of sense of humor and, and whimsy to to the way he presents himself and the way he presents his thoughts about you know trying to persuade Bond. And I think then you realize when you see him take out his you know fake jaw essentially and see what was done to him. Again, he tried to kill himself out of duty to queen and country um you see that like this is 
this is someone who's is like bordering on a psychopath, but isn't a necessarily a natural psychopath. It's what's been done to him. It's like, like I think he says at one point, it's like she created me. And I mean, while we all have our own choices to make, i.e., not becoming maniacally, you know, but not becoming a a villain trying to bring down global society as we know it, you still understand that without betrayal, however justified M's betrayal was, this guy would not exist at all. And he wouldn't be hurting people like he is now. And that that's very interesting to me. In a way, I feel like it's almost stronger storytelling-wise than Casino Royale in, in some respects. Just because sure. every every character arc, every every moment in this film feels like very fine-tuned. Like like it, it has a, a a very clear point that it's trying to get across regarding the franchise, regarding the history of the character, and and um it's just it's executed so so perfectly. We were talking about Spectre and how that was not executed for, uh, very well at all. And I feel like uh, in this film, it all really it, it, everything uh, manages to to really capture the essence of Bond as a character and how you know you, these characters you when faced with trauma, you can either buckle under it like like Silva, or you can persist through it the way that M did, the way that Bond chooses to do in the end. Right. And I mean, uh, just that now that you mentioned the end, I've been dying to talk about that. The final standoff in the church, I think, where it's where it's Silva, M and, and Bond, or at least it's Silva and M at first. And then Bond makes a surprise entrance at the end. That was like a, a individually brilliant scene, but also incredibly satisfying uh, as a resolution to the themes that have been discussed. Um, like, like there's one creepy scene that's probably arguably the most Joker moment in the movie actually is where like he, you know, he's like blood, there's blood on his hand. He's like rubbing it all over M and then he like, he puts his head next to M and then he puts his, it's hard to, it's hard to explain the blocking, but like he basically puts his gun to both his own and M's head and says, free us with one bullet. Mm -hmm. Like that's his, you know, it's like, he's, he, it's like he's it has driven by revenge, but he also wants to be put down. He has like a death wish. Right. Um, and, and that was like, that was just a demented and terrifying and brilliant scene. And then you see M like, I think legitimately terrified for like the first time ever. And then Bond makes an appearance, you know, kills him with a knife. And then as Silva's breathing his last breath, Bond goes last rat standing. Yep. And that's kind of like, you see what I'm saying? It's like he, he chose another option where it's like he could overcome. He found a third option instead of killing each other or killing everyone else. You know, he, well, I guess not, but you, you get what I'm saying. Like he, he blazes his own path and makes his own decisions and overcomes whatever his arc was. And then that's why I think the end of the movie is so satisfying. Yeah. To, to go back, not to go back to star Wars again, but it's really kind of sure. a, uh, let, let the past die kind of scene for, yeah. him, for, oh, for bond exactly. in this film. Because, like I said, because it lines up with all the classic Bond, you know, tropes and Money Penny and the car and all that stuff, and like he burns his childhood home, and so he's moving forward with his life, and and I think that's again part of not to keep like beating beating the dead horse that is Spectre, but um, <laughs> but the, the fact that <laughs> no that, problem there, the fact that me. that film was also like, hey, like, but here's some more stuff from the old classic Bonds, it makes right. it feel like a betrayal of the direction that the franchise was going in. Well, there was such kind of like I said earlier, beautiful finality right. to that scene. Like you knew exactly, you kind of not just intellectually understood, but you like gutturally felt the victory. You know what I'm saying? I mean, the death of M, which we probably should discuss a little more, hurt. Like I remember being in theaters for that, and it was like it was like a weirdly somber moment. I didn't know it was coming, and also the way it was executed was like 
almost like deeply unsettling or disturbing to me. And like, it was a, uh, I, I don't know what about it particularly gave me that reaction, but it actually felt like the passing of a legend. You know, you understood who this person was and what they've contributed and what they stood for. And like them passing is like, you almost felt like the life of G of the franchise waver, you know, the, I don't, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. it was kind of, how do you kill a legend of 20 years of this franchise and not have it change the story? Like that, that's such a loss and it is recognized thankfully in the film, but like it's a, it's a deeply painful loss. It's the end of an era for, for a bond. Yeah. The fact that Judy Dench is, Time as M is, is was winding to a close in this film, and I think they wisely, you know, obviously make really emphasize her character in here, and we learn more about her life in this film than we have in her previous six performances because she usually just shows up, gives him a mission, and pieces out, like butts heads yeah, with him accordingly exactly. uh, throughout, obviously. But in this film, you you learn more about the the connection between her and Bond, and her, like her history, and the tough choices that she's made, and the the fact that the leader of MI6 has to really bear the brunt of, of those decisions and um, the effect that that's had on her personally. Yeah. I think my other favorite part of, or one of the parts of that scene I really respected is like she, you know, she basically dies in Bond's arms and she looks up and says, at least I got one thing right. And that's mm-hmm. kind of, I think the validation in a weird ways Bond needed to, to go on. Uh, you know, he had to overcome basically fighting his own reflection, which is Silva, you know, right. another someone who's exactly like him. And I think secretly, you know, just like being an orphan, you're and ha- and going through that traumatic childhood, you know, it, it, earlier on, it says bond is a pathological je- rejection of authority due to unresolved childhood trauma. So to have a maternal figure on her deathbed say, I got something right. Right. That's kind of like it's not even touched upon much in the movie, but I think it could be argued that that's. Very, very important for Bond to have the self-assured nature to continue what he's doing and, and to go along the path that he does. Um, so again, great, 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 great character work. I and just, it, I love it so much. I think that's why Skyfall is probably of, of certainly of the Craig Bonds, but it probably might be the most transcendent because it works as just an like an escapist thrill ride because of you know that's the, the big scope the set of, pieces. Yeah, yeah, yeah the scope of these of this these films and this one specifically but also that all that character work and all that theme and everything is 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 in there it's just below the surface maybe you have to like look a little closer or you might miss some of that so if you just go into this expecting a superficial bond adventure you'll enjoy it but if you're looking for a little deeper uh deeper storytelling it's obviously you know it's it's in there for you and the fact that you know, Bardem is in this already an Oscar winner and made such an impression in this movie. I mean, I, I actually even remember, I think there was some light Oscar buzz for him at one point. Cause he was nominated really? for a SAG award for this film, uh, wow. which is insane to me because, because of, this is a franchise. And again, not to go back to the Joker comparison, but Heath Ledger won for, for uh, posthumously for playing the Joker yeah. in the dark Knight, And, you know, Bardem already had an Oscar and this is a similarly big villain performance and a, much touted sequel in a long ongoing franchise. So it felt like that something like that could have been in the air. Do you think that uh, Silva is, I mean, well, clearly in, in the Craig franchise, I'd, I'd say the, probably the case, but do you think he is among the best Bond villains? And I guess we sort of already explained why, if that's the yeah, case. Yeah, I, w- I would say absolutely. I mean, um, yeah. No, <laughs> like if you think back to, I'm trying to think what are the other iconic Bond villains, like Goldfinger for sure. Um, 
man, why am I, why am I blanking? Because there's so Goldfinger and Blofeld, I guess, would kind of be right. like two of the most seminal villains. Um, Blofeld, of which appeared in several movies. Um, I, I think there was something to their character as to what they were trying to accomplish and why. And, and you know, the Bond villains that fail are the ones that are kind of diabolical without cause. Like I know people will say, Oh, bond is just, you know, it's all about the girls and the cars and the locations and the action. Like the story doesn't matter. And that could be argued, but like, I think the best bond movies that are universally revered as the franchise's crowning achievements always have good story and good character work. It's just not complicated, like a a prestige drama. It has to be simple. And and so when you have a simple and well-honed villain, like Blofeld or Goldfinger, in this case, Silva, um, you really buy it. And I think in the case of Silva, less is more. If he appeared in a lot of movies, it's like his agenda could become tired or trite or cliche, but it's like he comes in the middle of the movie swinging hard. You know, it's already like you don't waste a moment and he has a journey and no scene is wasted and no line is put in without purpose. And I think that's ultimately what contributes to why he's going to be remembered as, as one of the best apart from just a, a brilliant performance. Yeah, you mentioned all those hallmarks of the franchise, and that's probably because there are so many of them. That's probably part of why my interest in the Bond films has always like has wavered, kind of as the quality of the films have. Uh, Which is why going into like Skyfall, I was like, okay, I will see how this is. Quantum of Solace wasn't great, so I'm on a downswing right now. Which is like, I hope, of course, I'll see Bond twenty five, but I'm not like over the moon like hyped about it like I am for the next two Mission Impossible movies because that franchise has been consistently stellar, like especially the last three. And Bond has been very erratic. Uh, So one thing I wanted to touch on also, because we mentioned the the final act set piece. I I love the fact that um, it starts out, you get that that big uh, invasion of the hearing where the, the Silva and his his men come yeah. in there and there's a big shootout and uh, Mallory gets shot and all that. And then it really focuses on the, the three central characters. It's something similarly to what uh, Captain America Civil War or something like that might do, where it's like, oh, you got your big set piece and now we're going to like really hone in on more of an intimate character interaction, even though there is an exploding house and all that other stuff. Uh, what, certainly, how certainly. do you, what do you, how do you feel about the, cause I've seen this, I don't know if it's honest trailers or what, uh, crit- what does a, a criticism about the third act of this film where it's very bond meets home alone, where it's just like rigging. Yeah, no, that was, that was the honest trailer. I think it's total horseshit. Okay. I think it's a horseshit complaint. I think the final set, I mean, I, I often love set pieces or, or, you know, third acts that tone things down instead of crank them up, not in a sense of character drama, but of scope where it's like, you know, uh, Silva circling a house that's burning down with bond inside, uh, is more exciting than a, a chase through the mountains. You know what I'm saying? It's yeah. something whereas it's in the middle of nowhere. It's at a, a extremely personal place for Bond, extremely symbolic place for Bond. You know, he said somewhere where we'll have the upper hand, somewhere where I know. It's like throughout the story, you're seeing Bond have to confront himself, and not, not just through Silva, but himself in many ways thematically. You know, instead of shoving his history under the rug, he has to embrace himself and embrace where he's come from and embrace his trauma in a sense. I think that's so much better than any any big blowout. So for me, you know, the fact that 
his and, and the other thing is he, he didn't have many resources. We're so used to Bond having unlimited resources, all these gadgets, you know, a helicopter that can fit into a briefcase for Christ's sake. Like, you know, we have all that stuff. It's like the fact that now he has, you know, two rifles, a knife, a stick of dynamite, <laughs> you know, and, and some and some screws and nails. Like that's much more can tell much more about a character and 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 actually position the character to be much more of a hero um, because of his ability to MacGyver away to defeating Silva and his army with nothing. Um, so I loved it. No, I mean, that's one of my favorite parts of the movie, quite frankly. Yeah, I think it's an interesting approach because it scales down the, you know, the action, uh, as you said, that that in this franchise tends to get really, really overblown. Really I'm thinking big. of something like what <laughs> Die Another Day or The World Is Not Enough. Yes. Or there's like all, all kinds of crazy stuff happening. Uh, I think there's an invisible car or something in one of those. Uh, where this or you go to is, space like Moonraker. You yeah. Have a, exactly. a zero G battle. I love Moonraker, but still it's like it goes so crazy at the end. Right. And, and I think uh, by amping up the personal stakes, it makes that a lot more satisfying. I just thought that was kind of a funny criticism and way of looking at it. I'm like I mean, yeah, kind of. It kind of is. It still works, but I, I could see their point in that, in kind of pointing out the that okay. uh, for comical effect. But we didn't even mention the uh, the opening credit sequence or the oh, theme so song good. by Adele or any of that yet. So it obviously, yeah. this won the Academy Award for Best Original Song. I think it also won like sound editing or something. Uh, so what do you? How do you feel? Where do you feel that this credit sequence uh, ranks with some of the other previous Bonds? And I guess the uh, the first Oscar win for the iconic Bond theme. It's the best. Just plain and simple. It's yeah. the best. There's no, there's no topping it. There might never be. Um, it, the song is amazing. I still listen to it all the time. The and, oh god, the way they weave in. I mean, they often weave in parts of the story into the credits, but the way specifically uh, it's done here. When I saw it in theaters, I uh, it just was transcendent. Like I felt. I was in a trance and I think what's great about it is not only is it independently evocative and striking, it's that compared to what you've seen and what you're about to see, it further, it, it, it invokes some kind of emotional reaction that you're not even sure why, but it's like, you know, that's what Bond is feeling. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? It's somehow the credit sequence and the song and the visual design bridges the gap between the audience and their seat and the characters on screen. Um, apart from just being wildly entertaining and a complete extravaganza of, of creativity and design. Um, I, I could gush about it for much longer, but I think, you know, where I stand on it now. Um, it's, it's hands down my favorite sequence in the franchise so far well that you know the iconography in that sequence i think is is so it's such a, a cool way to encapsulate the whole thing and it's so dreamlike and it, it's introed with bond yes. bonds uh. like basically floating to his death uh which you could almost sort of look at that like this is bond's fever dream as he's like having his near this near-death experience kind of thing uh and the, the song was so powerful and impactful that Sam Smith won an Oscar for the next movie song, which is way inferior to this one in pretty much every way. Uh, so, yeah. so yeah, that, that, that like momentum carried on through the next Bond film, which was funny because this was the first one to ever win uh, to win an Oscar. You know, other ones had been nominated before, so I thought I think that that's it's kind sure. of interesting to consider that that ended up being kind of uh, the I guess short lived trend. We'll see what happens with the next one. I think quick note, the other two ones I really like Bond themes are Live and Let Die by I think it was Paul McCartney yep. and then uh, Goldfinger. Don't remember who that was by, but that's that's also a classic song. So that was I think that's uh 
Shirley Bassey, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, you know, I think that sounds right. Yeah, no, for sure. I've had it on, on repeat on Spotify, so for sure. I, I actually wondered, one thing I was really excited to discuss, but I, I feel like I should throw it to you instead mm-hmm. of, you know, I think people have heard enough of my thoughts by now. Um, the the Bond girls, I mean, right. apart from M, you know, uh, Money Penny, um, and then uh, uh, Bernice Marlowe plays Severine. Right. She's in it as well. I'm curious as to those characters. Well, well, it's it's watching these. You can tell one of the ways that they, that they modernized the franchise is that Bond's sexual conquests aren't as rampant as they might have been in the '60s. <laughs> So in this movie, he has, yeah. uh, you know, he has uh, kind of a brief love scene with so the lady, the whoever, the woman that you know, he's on that island drinking shot yeah, glasses seven, with yeah. Scorpion. Well, no, not that. The before that, when he's uh, oh. in his exile and he's drinking shot shots of liquor with a scorpion on his hand. Oh, uh, right, so like right. really brief. Yeah. So he has like a brief uh, affair when he's before you know before he returns, and then Severine. Like there's usually like now. He he beds two women per movie, kind of. I think is where we are at with these, uh, with these more recent ones, and yeah. you know, you know, which obviously makes sense. So, I I think I do think that the part with Severine, like I think that actress is, gives lovers a really good performance. But there is there are some ways to read that uh, that character in the film, sort of um, throwing some some sketchiness towards uh, in Bond's way. One, because right. he spots her there and he's like, oh, you were in this, you know, you were a sex worker. I think I'm going to show up later right. on your boat and sneak up on you with my dick out and see what happens while you're in the shower. Right. And uh, and then later on, you know, I, I think Bond maybe cares a little more about these women, at least some degree, than he lets sure. on. But it's also like very throwaway where it, it sounds like he, he's just like using these women. And I think that was one criticism that I've seen of uh, of this movie specifically. There's actually uh, Pete Holmes did a, a really funny sketch for I think College Humor about that scene where he gets in the shower and he obviously doesn't have protection or anything and just like just like uh, initi- right. initiates, you know, uh, hooking up with her in the, in the middle of the shower. Um, so I think that that the way that they handle it here is not, not great. Um, so right. better than they used well, to, but it's an evolution. So yeah. in the next one, he, he gets with uh, Leia Sidhu and, and I'm really interested to see, in Monica Bellucci, I think too, in the inspector. Yeah. yeah and, very and early on. I'm curious movie. to see now with bond 25 in the me too era and things like that, how they're going to, still let, let him, you know, be sexually adventurous and all that, but not let it kind of uh, rein it in so it's more right. considerate towards the, the women and the characters on screen. My interpretation of the of the scene with Severine was a little bit different, actually. I mean, because first off, she invites him to the boat. Sure. I mean, like, uh, let's just be clear, like, early on, like, watching the old Bond movies, there are scenes that are, like, downright rape. Like, I'm not even exaggerating. I think... It's not in Doctor No. Um, uh, Goldfinger, yeah, with Pussy Galore. Like, there's literally a scene where, like, maybe it's a different movie. No, no, no. Yeah, no, it is with Gold with a uh, uh, Goldfinger, and like, like they're in a barn discussing, and he just like starts making out with her, and no joke, like knocks her down and like pins her hands to the ground and starts like kissing her wow. without any kind of a permission or like literally just out of nowhere, like pins her down and starts kissing her until she like gets into it, and then he takes off her clothes. I was like, that's rape. I just watched a rape scene with this. Um, however, however much indiscretion 
is is expressed on Bond's right. behalf. At the at the same time, she invites him right. to the yacht. She sets up like a romantic like wine champagne thing. She she has her hair down. She's in her robe. She's expecting him like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a reasonable thing that he was watching or he knew that he was invited. She gets into the shower. He joins him and like she there's also like verbal consent. Like he says he said he says a pickup line and she responds like suggestively. She right. could have said no. So it's like there there is a level of indiscretion or distaste in like porking a child former child prostitute. Right. That that's like, come on. At yeah. the same time, it's like I completely disagree with any any uh notion that this was not consensual or not reciprocated and it was like that was an instance of rape because we have seen instances that were rapey earlier this was not one um to your point could still be more tasteful you know, yeah, could, yeah it could not, still be and I'm not, a little I'm, bit more but but i didn't get the controversy when it came out yeah i'm not saying that it, it that it is straight up rape i think it, it, the way it's right, depicted right. on screen like there are those there are those elements that you mentioned but it's it's i i, I problematic is the way I would describe it. It's not <laughs> well, it's, like it's all funny. the way there, but it's like oh, enough that it's like on the surface appears to, to have, to, to, it appears to, to feel sort of uh, non, you know, not consensual and, and element. Right. So it's, it's, it's a gray area where I, I, I understand where you're coming from and I don't necessarily feel that it is all the way like skeezy on Bond's part, but it, it right. is, it is sort of like, uh, I could see how it makes people feel icky. Yeah. Oh no, for sure. It's not. It's not a particularly tasteful, <laughs> tasteful right. scene. I will say what's interesting with Money Penny. Um, like he, there's a scene where she delivers a message for him and, and is basically spying on Bond for Mallory before Mallory becomes M. And like she, she kind of. It's, it's weird to say this out loud, but she like offers to like shave him with the like. Oh, yeah. it sounds so unsexy when I say it out loud. It's a hot but, scene like, though. So like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a super hot scene, and it's like they're talking as she's using the straight razor right. to to shave him, and then like so he's like he kind of they're discussing, and the conversation fizzles out, and he's like, okay, we'll see, and he starts to like unbutton her shirt, and then that's when she like puts the razor like right in his neck, and it's like still got one more spot to go. This, you know, don't move. I could slit your throat, and so and they don't hook up, and like that was you know for whatever Marshall it's worth, that was a nice scene where it's like oh money penny isn't an object, like you know money. Penny actually has a lot of poise and autonomy in this iteration and this movie. Um, and it's just inherently progressive because to have an African-American woman play money penny mm-hmm. would, I don't know if that would have uh, sadly, I don't know if that would have flown back in the old, you know, old school bond. Yeah. And Naomi Harris was so great in the, in this movie. Oh, and, so good. uh, you know, I think had that not, had she not been playing money penny, which isn't that the whole running gag with money penny that she's like all about bond and bonds like, yeah, I'm going to keep you, uh, friend zoned a little bit and like right drag that out dick for- to her in the old movies yeah, <laughs> yeah. really yeah so I, I had that not been money penny i have a feeling that probably would have happened they were just establishing the early the early quote early days of that trope uh, and that relationship yeah. uh, but I, I i presume we'll see more of that kind of progressive handling of female characters where they're really owning their sexuality or uh you know you know rather than her it's doing like the woman doing the seducing maybe bond will get seduced more in the next movie himself i don't know <laughs> he nearly uh, got seduced by the villains so. yeah <laughs> almost <laughs> uh 
Um, so one thing that I wanted to make sure I know we're, we're probably getting to the, the wind down part of the conversation, but one thing I had to have to mention is that when I first saw this movie, what really struck me other than, you know, the story and, and Bardem and all that was how amazing it looks. So Roger Deakins yeah. cinematography, I think this was, you know, I'd heard of Roger Deakins, but this was one of those movies. This was one of those movies that I, when I saw it in theaters, I was like, Oh, that's right. That's what Roger Deakins brings to a movie. Got it. Uh, I need to make yeah. sure I watch that now every time he he shoots a movie. And of course, he ended up winning uh, the Oscar for Blade Runner 2049, which he does amazing work in that. Uh, so tell me a little bit about what do you what do you think his contribution is to this movie? And especially, I mean, throughout the whole film, but like, it, you know, I think it's most pronounced in the Shanghai sequences. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how to where to where to begin? Um. I never really knew Bond for its like hyper stylized imagery in a way. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it, the older movies, as fun as they are, they're visually kind of flat. And I thought Quantum of Solace was like an ugly looking movie, anyways. And so it was something where when I actually chose, when my friends and I were out one weekend, there was a choice between Cloud Atlas and Bond. And we started in Cloud Atlas because I was like, oh, it's Bond. Like, you know, I was kind of burnt from Quantum of Solace. I'm like, sure, some mediocre movie with whatever. You know, it was it was because there was only two out so far. One was a huge hit. One was a miss. I wasn't in a rush to see Skyfall. We started in Cloud Atlas. We hated Cloud Atlas. So like 10 minutes in or 15 minutes in, we left to go to the, the whatever was the next Bond screening. And like I – was completely blown away because I was going to Cloud Atlas to see a visual treat. I could not believe that Bond delivered in spades what I would look to like sci-fi or other other uh, blockbuster movies to to give that kind of uh, visual aesthetic. Um, from Macau, I mean, that's just gorgeous photography with the like kind of gambling casino in Macau, and I, I mean, even the way London is shot. I, Sam Mendes had talked a lot about how he really, being a Londoner, he wanted to capture the city in a unique light, visually with color and light, in a way that typically had not been used to portray London. Something that would kind of style, you know, stylize it. To or, or give it a flavor to the point that like it might not look photographically exactly what London looks like, but it makes you feel like what it feels like to be in London. I just thought it was really fascinating. And of course, I mean, the final scene with the at, at Skyfall, the mansion itself and the underwater sequence. And, and I mean, it's it's unbelievable what he did um, in, in terms of light and color and, and aesthetic, a lot of it is overexposed, but still looks really good. I've yet to figure out exactly how he did that. Um, the, I also just think the aesthetic he chose or he and Sam Mendes chose worked perfectly for the story. Sometimes you have a super cool looking movie that the way it's shot or the way it's lit actually kind of counteracts the way you're supposed to feel from the scene. You know what I'm saying? It's like a confused tone. Um, sometimes it's like, even with the Marvel movies, I love the Marvel movies, but a lot of them look the same and can look sometimes kind of flat and they're very colorful, but through light and contrast, it lacks that pizzazz, that style. You know, I saw Deacon's work as accentuating and amplifying the way the characters felt from scene to scene. Um, and, and that's that I think it just like, you know, the title sequence brought me in. So did the visual aesthetic just, locks you in your seat and you're spellbound i mean whether you're in london or shanghai or or, you know fighting at night on a farm next to a burning mansion like that's so cool yeah i feel like this is the definitive benchmark for the franchise visually and 
and oh, you totally. know obviously deacons did not <laughs> i feel like this is a this is a we hate specter episode but deacons did not return <laughs> for specter which is a, which is another way oh. in which that film failed to deliver so and his it's it's just insane to me like how much his contribution elevates this already strong material um, the, to the fact that it's able to stand out amongst all, you know, because as you mentioned, the, the Bond films are not known for being like beautiful to look at necessarily, yeah. but there are yeah, shot yeah. there are shots in this film, and I think the moment when I was watching it the first time where it really crystallized for me was uh, again the Shanghai scene. But he's on the little he's on the boat with the the floating lanterns, uh, yeah. and then I think the part before that with the the fist fight uh with the jellyfish behind oh, him and stuff. Like, oh yeah God, well that wasn't a shanghai gorgeous. yeah like a shanghai high rise yes. they were next to like a neon because like shanghai is very looks futuristic like even on the highways they're lined with like neon lights um and yeah and that fight that was basically backlit by like this like blade runner like advertisement that's another takeaway is this is this completely reinvigorated and altered the way I looked at the franchise and what potential I thought the franchise had, which is a massive accomplishment to something that already had what 22 movies before it exactly. to be able to do that and, and inf- infuse that kind of flavor. Yeah. So we'll see. I hope hopefully with bond 25, they'll, they'll get things back on track. I mean, if we're in a, every bond, every Craig bond film <laughs> alternatively, uh, alternately is, you know, a standout, then maybe, maybe we'll be, uh, you know, set for something yeah. something really special uh before i have one more question is there anything about the this film that you want to make sure we covered before we uh start getting winding down no i think i mean i think we've covered everything pretty much everything i i did want to again just say how much i love naomi harris i don't know i feel like i might have missed the opportunity to just gush about the money penny character and how how well she did um uh I, I thought she mixed kind of I, to your point, you know, she was able to mix her sexuality with also poise and self-respect and sophistication. And that's not something that bond has been known for managing it, you know, giving its female characters no, to be more dynamic and multifaceted and, and independent. Um, I also think like, like, probably because of Sam Mendes, this movie is an embarrassment of riches in terms of character performances. Like again, like the scene where money, Penny and, and bond meet up in Macau. It's not a particularly complex scene. There's not even that many zingers in it, but the actor's delivery is so honed into where the characters are. And so interesting, like specifically Naomi Harris can read, can read a phone book and make it sound fascinating. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, that's also amplified or elevated by, by Sam Mendes, ability. So like another takeaway from this, movie i guess I'll, what i'll leave with my final word is that the characters and their delivery and and everything about the people felt so much more real and so much more engaging and so much more intriguing you know espionage is intriguing to have you know people like pussy galore or honey rider it's like they're they're fun characters but they're completely one note mm-hmm. and this is still you know skyfall preserves the fun of old school bond but gives its characters more sophistication and respect and uh, i mean for that i just you know one of the reasons one of the many many reasons i love this movie so much yeah people like money pun money penny and q actually feel like real people instead of just props yeah. like steps on bond's journey uh, in this film. so so just before we start ending the show i wanted to i would be remiss we're talking about bond obviously bond 25 is going to be i'm assuming the last film it's been confirmed the last film for daniel craig at this point hopefully i hate to say that but hopefully so who do you think should be the next 007 or alternatively if Mm. you don't want to like 
that's a conversation that people feel like they're constantly having, even when Daniel Craig is signed in for additional films. Uh, how do you think they should approach the, the series going forward? Do you think they should reinvent it and start from scratch again? Do you think they should keep this cast of supporting players and just re- redo, recast Bond and move forward? What, what would you like to see happen? I, I think each Bond iteration needs like a hard reboot. Um, man, the actor question is so hard because, I mean, for example, no one would have thought of Daniel Craig to play Bond right. in 2005, yet they still, you know, whatever they shot, 2004, 2005, yet they still chose him. Um, I, I, I mean, I've heard people, f- Idris, okay, you know, he might be a little old for this, mm. but Idris Elba. I think Idris Elba, and and it, it is not a matter of, like, like I, I mean, I, people might think I would say that because it's like, oh, Bond needs to be progressive. I just genuinely believe that Idris Elba is the best actor out there to play Bond. Right. Like of all the suggestions I've heard, they're all like, eh, but you know, okay, I like this element, but you know, I don't like, like this act, you, you know, it's like, there's so many pros and cons with Idris Elba. I cannot think of a single con to him playing Bond. Um, uh, I think he would be a knockout, but again, it also depends on what creative direction they go. You know, if they want to cast a younger bond or they want to do something to again, reinvigorate the franchise, picking someone in their forties might not be the right choice. So it's entirely dependent on what the producers choose. But if we're just looking at like for a more classical older bond, like, Oh my God, Idris Elba, please, please. And at this point, that kind of almost feels like the, the obvious answer. But I mean, I agree with you. Like you'll see, you'd see a lot of people like, that bucking the Idris Elba uh, response. And I think part of that, you know, they, they, I guess they get hung up on race, but then my whole thing is with Bond. It's not white, black, it's, British. He needs to be a British. Yeah, guy. and he's British. Idris Elba is British. That's like, all you get. That's all you need. Because like, some every once in a while you'll see people say, "Oh, people still want Idris Elba to play Bond," and you'll there'll be a post about it on every entertainment site, and then the comments are like, "Oh, what's next? A white shaft?" and things like that. And it's like it's oh, not God. about that. It's not about yeah. race. What you Bond needs to be is British, uh, handsome, charming. And a good actor. And you, you, yeah. you got all of those with Idris Elba. He has the presence. He's got the accent. He's from, you know, he's now they were going to say, and it's, it's again, it's not a race thing. If they were going to cast, I don't know, Chris Hemsworth, then I might be like, well, he's Australian. So it's kind of a gray area. But, you know, if they were going to cast yeah. Chris Evans or somebody like American, then I'd be like, OK, no, that's not cool. I don't care yeah. what color your skin is. You're not. It's like <laughs> that's like casting an American as Harry Potter or something. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, it's like, <laughs> no, I, I totally I totally. So it's a that. nationality thing. And so, I, I mean, Idris Elba feels like the obvious choice, but I also feel like. That's because it makes sense. I mean, everybody know he's he's famous enough now, where everybody know pretty much knows who he is. But he's also not somehow leading films that often. You know what I mean? So it's like yeah, a role like well, he, this would would kind of propel him to that next level that he needs to get to. He did, I think, The Dark Tower, which I don't think is a good movie, but he was the absolute standout as, like, the gunslinger-type character. And, like, obviously Bond isn't a gunslinger-western-type character, but the range of both steeliness and sympathy and physicality and and also performance with very little dialogue, because Bond's never been a chatty kind of guy. It's just, it's an, an aura, an energy a, a vibe. I think Idris Elba, when you watch that or you watch any of his like actiony roles, you're like, Oh my God, this guy is something really special. And then, yeah, no, I, I can't think of, I'm sure there's great options, but if I was a producer, he'd be at the top of my list. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. 
Cool. So we're we're the Idris Elba for for Bond twenty six or whatever. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. The cricket table's and, official and standpoint. One other thing. One other quick thing. I am thrilled with how Bond twenty five has lined up in terms of the creative crew. Uh, Scott Z Burns, Phoebe Waller Bridge, uh, both unconventional picks for Bond, not British, but fa- oh no, Scott Z Burns isn't. I don't think, but Phoebe Waller Bridge is per- perfect. Uh, oddball choices, I think. Um, Kerry Fukunaga, he's one of the most eclectic and um, diversified director in terms of his body of work. I mean, he did Maniac, which is a weird Netflix series. It's a complete joy. He's done Jane Eyre, Beasts of No Nation, great movies. Um, the cinematographer they hired is the guy who did La La Land and The First Man, which are two of the most beautiful movies that have recently been shot. Um, I've looked at, they've leaked some of the locations they've shot at. I mean, everything. And just even listening to Kerry Fukunaga talk about what kind of energy he wants his movie to have. I'm completely on board, um, for, for what they're cooking up. I mean, I was excited for Danny Boyle and I, I, once he got fired, I was really depressed, but like they've recaptured my interest. So I'm actually very optimistic about bond 25. And if we look at the whole, uh, polarity, you know, bad movie, good movie, bad movie, good movie, you know, specter sucks. So I think we're <laughs> in for something good. I think this is going to be the, the good movie, um, until bond 20, 26 or 27. So I'm, I'm very optimistic and that's part of the reason I'm rewatching all of it is because I'm so excited for bond 25. What about uh, recent Oscar winner, Rami Malek as the villain? Like, what do you think? Uh, Her, oh, it's so good. Such a good choice because he's, he's not like, he's not mustache twirling. He's, right. you know, he's a very, almost like distant and cold actor. And, and, and he's just, I don't know what vibe they're going to pick with the character, but I don't know if they're, you couldn't have picked a more interesting actor for a bond villain. I think it's like, you know, you don't want like John Cena as a bond villain. You don't want <laughs> someone who's, you know, it's like you want, you want someone who's with sophistication or, or a, a weird diabolical charm. I use that word a lot. Diabolical. I think it's just a bond thing. <laughs> Well, they did have Dave Bautista in Spectre, which again was a waste. Well, he's a, of, he's a waste of yeah. Dave Bautista, though, too. Even for that role, he didn't really have much to do there. Um, yeah, so kind of like see. Jaws. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was kind of a, gonna, another throwback. So, but yeah, Skyfall still a great movie. I, I, I should, I'll definitely go back and I don't know if I'll go back and rewatch Spectre or Quantum of Solace, but I, I'm definitely gonna go see uh, Casino Royale and maybe revisit this one again before Bond Twenty Five to see if we can keep that. That uh, if we can recapture that that magic with uh, that these two films did. So, Adam, thank you so much for coming on the Crooked Table podcast again. Do you uh, want to let people know where they can find you on social media? Yeah, yeah. At Adam Bernard, B N A R D, on Twitter. Um, Screen Fever at Real Screen Fever on Twitter or uh, Screen Fever on YouTube or Facebook. You can find our content there. Uh, I also forgot to mention earlier because I got distracted. I also work as an editor for GateWorld.net. It's like a Stargate Sci-Fi news uh, news site. We do a lot of video work, interviews. Uh, we have our own basically Wikipedia for Stargate. So I I work with Darren Sumner over there. You can you'll find me around talking or or <laughs> talking or gushing about all the things I love. Uh, and thank you again for, for giving me a platform to come and discuss this movie because um, for whatever reason, I've, I've revisited this and like really learned a lot from it, I feel like, and, and felt a lot of things and, and have such a respect for this. And as my own you know, aspiring creative entity, this has been a huge inspiration just recently. So it's, it's an absolute honor to get to come on and talk about it for as long as you let me talk about <laughs> Skyfall. No, it's, it's, it's been this... 
there's not that many billion dollar blockbusters that are this rich that you can actually talk yeah. about it for over an hour and feel like you barely scratch mm, the surface. So, uh, you know, I think this was a, this is a good opportunity to for me to re- revisit it and revitalize my excitement for next year's film and uh, kind of get, get back, remember w- what this character in this franchise can be when they, they nail everything perfectly as this movie does. So uh, minus, minus the problematic female characters, <laughs> but I have a feeling they'll, they'll, they'll do, they'll do better next time. Like I said, it'll be interesting. It's interesting to watch this, uh, this franchise and all its tropes evolve with the times as you, as you've uh, noticed going back and re- we're watching or watching for the first time, some of the, uh, some of the older films. So, Totally. Well, come visit, come visit Screen Fever sometime and do a do a bond discussion with me. I'd oh, absolutely, absolutely. Love it. absolutely. Anytime you guys need me, I, I'd love to collaborate on more things. And it sounds like now you guys are going to be generating a lot more content. So definitely, people should uh, go check out your YouTube channel there. So that uh, that'll be all for the Crooked Table podcast this episode. Adam, it was a, it was a pleasure, and I'm sure we'll have you again on soon. Absolutely, whenever you want. All right, great. Thanks, man. If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com slash guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash crookedtable. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob. This has been a production of crookedtable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the